everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Rural Perspectives Podcast. I'm Adam Albrick, your host. Today we'll be discussing all things drones or UASs. Here to chat with us about these nifty machines is Zach Nicklin, who serves as the program manager and UAS instructor at Northland Community and Technical College in Thief River Falls. Welcome to the podcast, Zach. Thanks for having me. First things first, could you describe what exactly is classified as a UAS? All right, so UAS, um, so we, we've had RC aircraft for a long time, and, and the real thing with RC aircraft is they are being directly controlled at all times. Once we moved on to the GPS equipage and some of the higher level uh, INSs, inertial uh, navigation systems, we were able to start doing waypoint type missions. So basically, I could set the drone up to where it would go off and fly all by itself and complete a mission and then come back. And that's kind of where that distinction started to be made there. Now, I was surprised to find that unmanned aerial vehicles date as far back as like the 1800s in some cases. I guess when I think of this technology, I'm thinking something a little bit more modern, kind of what we have now. But apparently we've been building up to today, haven't we? Absolutely. So the kind of the father of RC was actually Nikola Tesla. And this was back in the late 1890s, I believe, with his teleautomaton. He was able to take this ship that was sitting in a big tub at the, at the I believe it was an electrical fair or electrical expo, and be able to remotely turn on and off the lights and, and things like that. And so that was kind of where RC started. But we've been making some form of, of drone or unmanned system since right around 1914, 1915. They don't necessarily resemble the ones that we have today, but a lot of the same concepts are, are there. So with today's UAS systems in mind, and pardon the pun here, but when did this industry really begin to take off? All right, so uh, it's, it's been with the military for a long time. In the military, right in the, the 70s, 80s, 90s, you know, kind of that time frame, they really started to, uh, to pick up the usage, even though, again, there's been, there's been projects up, you know, from the 1920s on. But then here recently, uh, as far as the the commercial applications and the commercial usage. That was really uh, early, early 2000s, you know, uh, 2006, seven, you know, as we started to come through that. And then uh, with the introduction of the DJI aircraft, I believe that was late, somewhere around 2009 to 2012. That's when it really started to be in the public eye. And that's more of your like phantoms. That's more your, your phantoms, yep. your quadcopters, things like that, uh, as opposed to the, the military type stuff. Yep. So there are 1.3 million drones currently registered with the federal aviation industry. That was as of a little earlier this year. That's up from 470,000 people just three years ago. What do you feel it is about these devices that really captivates people? Not only the fun aspect, but when you start looking at the commercial side, um, things like safety is a really big one. I mean, if you look at, at you know, how we did roof inspections or, or how some people are still currently doing them, you know, you're sending a guy up on a roof, you have no idea the condition of the roof and whether or not it's gonna hold their weight until you're actually up there and being able to just launch an aircraft from the ground. You know, I don't have to climb a ladder, I don't have to worry about safety harnesses, and I can get all that imagery that I need to, to be able to at least determine some, some basic things about that roof. And it's, it's kind of the same with other things. We got the, the dull, dirty, and dangerous jobs is really what they were, they were made for. So I have to ask you personally, what got you interested in this technology and, and what's led to you even becoming an instructor? Sure, so uh, for me personally, it started in the military. I was actually in the, in the United States Army, and uh, I actually joined to be an intelligence and electronic warfare maintainer integrator. I messed with sparks and computers and things like that and made sure that uh, we got the intelligence we needed where we needed it. 
But so not too long after that, uh, I got invited to, to go and, and work the RQ7 Bravo, the shadow program. And I was an electronic technician and a crew chief on that. And it just kind of went from there. That was, that was 2005. And so I've been kind of involved in, in one way or another with drones since then. Well, I know in Minnesota, Camp Ripley has a UAS base. In North Dakota, that's, of course, a big thing. So very prevalent in the military. Absolutely, and I actually uh, was a plank owner of that unit uh, for the Minnesota National Guard. We helped set up that, uh, that UAS unit. So Cool. So let's talk about what a drone can all do. You mentioned a little bit of application just a little bit ago, but there are certainly many different types of drones out there that serve different purposes. Could you run through and give us some examples of kind of what's available today? Oh, there's tons of stuff available today. I mean, everybody hears about the things like the Phantoms from DJI, simply because, you know, low cost and, and easy to operate. But there's everything from fixed wing to single rotor helicopters, and then all the way down to your quadcopters, hexcopters, octocopters, you know, and the uh, hex is six motors instead of the four from the quads. And But yeah, so there's, there's tons of stuff out there, and uh, it really depends on your application to, to what you'd be looking for. So, for instance, if we want to go be able to hover over something, so are we talking ag here? If I want to go uh, check out something that I, I noticed from far off in my field, I want the ability to maybe hover and, and to come down really low to get a really great picture of whatever I want to see. But we can't do that with the fixed wing side. The other side of it is with the fixed wing, I can usually get a lot more flight time out of it. So if I want to cover my entire field instead of just checking a spot, then I want to look at a fixed wing aircraft. It goes even deeper once you start looking at sensors. So the, the regular, you know, digital camera type of sensor is all well and good for, for pretty pictures or for building, you know, basic maps and things like that. But if you want to really pull data on the ag side, you want to start looking at, uh, at multispectral sensors, things that can actually, you can determine plant health, you can determine whether you need, uh, you know, fertilizer or pesticide or, or just more water. So it's, uh, like I said, it's all application dependent on what's going to work best for you. Absolutely. And I can remember growing up as a kid and seeing the remote-controlled airplanes, those helicopters and such, but it's nothing like today's machines, which of course makes sense as technology advances. And there's, as you just pointed out, there's a ton of different options out there, but how about pricing on some of these? I mean, I think of like a, a TV screen, a flat-screen TV screen, 10 years ago costed 50 to 100% more than it does today that price has come down over time. Is that what we're also kind of seeing in this industry for those who are looking, who might be looking to purchase or get into? Absolutely, so the, the prices are always kind of fluctuating and obviously advancements in technology are, are gonna make a real difference. But when you look at, uh, say, the, the basic entry-level type of, uh, of DJI-type aircraft, they've come down significantly since they were first introduced. And even some of the specialized aircraft from other organizations. There's an organization uh, here in Minnesota that actually produces some fixed-wing UAS that is made specifically for agriculture work. And I've seen a drop over the last six years of almost $8,000 or more. And that's with the updated technology. So the, the prices are definitely coming down, and they're, they're going to follow the same pattern that, that a lot of technology follows. There's always going to be that higher-end, more expensive, or, and then the lower-end consumer side, but you're going to see fluctuations on both. Getting back to the agriculture standpoint, I mean, drones are really used for many different things. You pointed out a few of them, but then you have crop insurance after a hailstorm comes through and knocks down plants. You can check that out. You can go out and survey buildings and things like that if you're an appraiser. Are more and more farmers 
coming to you or coming to you guys in this department and, and asking, you know, how is this, how does this work or what are you kind of seeing out there? So we, we are seeing some more and more, um, you know, we're, we're always a little slower to adopt, uh, you know, new technology, it seems, especially when we're looking uh, at the commercial aspect, you know, return on investment, things like that. Um, and then there's a, there's a comfort factor involved. You know, I, I mean, are you comfortable taking this, you know, $10,000 commercial aircraft that we just bought and going out and, and flying it yourself? You know, and that's that's kind of an individual choice. I mean, especially with the the younger farmers, things like that, they tend to be more apt to to adopt new technology. But yeah, I think we're seeing it more and more, and we're seeing uh, more ways that it can be used. You know, not just uh, like like you said on the insurance side, checking out the crop health. Uh, you can use thermal cameras and go out and, and count your cows in the field at night, uh, you know, make sure all your calves are there. Uh, you can check out and see if there's any predators lurk, lurking around the edges that maybe you should, uh, you know, go and, and find a way to scare off or take care of. So yeah, there's there's lots of different uses and, and I'm really seeing it start to pick up as people go, hey, I wonder if I could do this with it. And so in fact, I got a, I got a call from uh, one of our, our representatives for the state of Minnesota here who had a a constituent asked them, well, hey, you know, we have to take temperatures for, uh, of cows to see if they're ready to, to calve and uh, wondering if we can use a drone to do it. So that's, you know, some things that we're looking into. So we're, we're getting a lot more interest and a lot more questions on, on how exactly they can be used. Another interesting twist is, I mean, I think any farmer that's out there has an aerial photo of their farm, of what it looked like at some point in maybe the 60s or the 70s or 80s or, or, or whenever. Now that doesn't seem to be so much taken by airplane, it seems to be taken more by drones. Absolutely. And it, it used to be, you know, you'd have some guy come up and, and knock on your door and show this nice, you know, 12 by 12 photograph or whatever and say, hey, you want to buy this photo I took of your place? You know, you're not seeing that nearly as much anymore, but uh, but you are seeing a lot of people looking for that aerial photograph of their place and not just for the, the nostalgia and the look and everything. Uh, one of the advantages that we really have with UAS is, is that we can get good data repeatedly throughout the growing season and we can we can make management choices based on the data that we're receiving and not have to wait till oh well it's the end of the year what did you know how, how many bushels did I did I get you know things like that so we can we can change our practices throughout the year to give our best yield by the end of the season I'm thinking out loud on this type of question so bear with me but you you notice some crop dusting, for example, still done by a lot of airplanes and even some helicopters. But you think of the possibilities of having a system like this do that in the future in which you can get much lower. It can avoid kind of the drift onto other, you know, neighboring farmers' farms and stuff like that. So there are a bunch of different applications for this technology once it kind of continues to advance. Well, we don't even have to look to the future for that. So Japan, for example. Uh, the Yamaha R-Max is a helicopter. It's got about an 11-foot length with the rotor blades. Um, it's actually been spraying fields in Japan since like the 1990s, and uh, the, they've got they, they've got different farming practices than we do. You know, there's a lot of cuts in the side of mountains. We're getting a fixed-wing aircraft in there. It's going to be very very difficult to get a good even spray, and they've been using this to fly it at crop top height. Another advantage is that the, the downdraft from the rotor blades actually bends the crops to the side. So a lot of crops, they'll have kind of a waxy film on the top of the leaf that helps protect the plant. But when you spray on top of that, you don't get as much absorption as if you were to spray under it. So as the, the rotor blades are turning the crops kind of to the side a little bit, you actually can spray less and be more effective with it. Now here in the U.S., 
we've got those you know hundred acre thousand acre farms you know those those big farms and using the the smaller stuff that's out there and available right now is not really feasible outside of spot spraying and they do make some great you know uh, aircraft that fit in that small UAS category where you can use commercially here under 55 pounds uh, for spot spraying but it's it's Again, with those larger farms, it may not have that, that return on investment they're looking for. As we progress and as the FAA allows it, uh, the technology is already there to take a full-size sprayer and turn it into an unmanned aircraft and, and be able to do just that same thing. We'll see how that continues to advance. I think there's a lot of guys out there who would be chomping at the bit to uh, get something like that going. So, But then there's also the retail aspect. I mean, you hear the Amazons of the world, some of those larger retailers exploring, taking packages and dropping them off literally on people's doorsteps or at least on their properties and of course that raises a bunch of different questions but it, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens in that neck of the woods and and is this something that you kind of envision happening in the near future absolutely in fact i believe the first package just got delivered uh here in the u.s within the last week um and i, I couldn't recall if it's ups i, I think it might have been you know, don't don't hold me to that one. But yeah, it was it was just completed here in the in the U.S. and it's and it's been used in other places as well. I believe there's a place in in Sweden where you can order food uh, while you're up hiking in the mountains, and they'll deliver it to you. You know, <laughs> so it's uh, and then even looking here in in Grand Forks, there's a golf course that instead of the beer cart, you know, they'll they'll bring out you know food or beverages to you via UAS. So it's definitely here. It's definitely coming. There there is a lot of work to do when you start looking at the congested airspace and how we're exactly going to deliver it what are you going to do with an apartment building you know i mean there's there's a lot of questions yet to answer but it's it's coming and it's it's here so what are some of the most common questions that you get about a UAS uh, mainly how it works and and how i'm allowed to you know what i'm allowed to do with it or not you know hey can you can you go and, and you know do XYZ? Well, no, no, I can't. I mean, the aircraft can do it, but regulations stop me, you know, whether it's flying over 400 feet or outside a line of sight, things like that. Um, and there are waivers for some of those things, but for, for your average operator, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's a lot about the technology, especially when you, when you pull out a thermal camera and start showing it to people. They really love to see stuff like that. Well, that's perfect transition, and we're going to switch gears here just a little bit, and let's discuss some of the challenges facing the industry. Obviously, new questions are being raised about privacy, given everything that you just said. Could you speak to some of those concerns? So when it comes to privacy, and I'm, I'm sure there's a lot of controversy around it, the, the way I see it is, is privacy and our laws around privacy should absolutely be technology agnostic. It doesn't matter if I'm peeking in your window with my cell phone or if I'm doing it with a drone, I'm still peeking in your window. The other side of it is, for the most part, people out there, they, they, most people do the right thing, you know. And so when they're out flying along, there's times I think that maybe uh, people think that they maybe own their airspace. I, I've heard a lot of that. You know, well, it's my backyard and they're, you know, 30 feet over my house. Well, you know, that's, that's still national airspace and, and not private airspace. Now, obviously, if you, if you go over somebody's house and you're looking, you know, down at their pool or something like that, well, yeah, I'd have a problem with that too, you know. But I, I think that, uh, that maybe it's a little, uh, a little bit of hype. And I, and I don't think I, I know of any cases, uh, off the top of my head at least, uh, where someone was actually using it to look in a window and, and you know, um, got arrested or, or a case about it or anything like that. I'm sure it's happened out there, but no, no big cases around that as far as I know. So what type of advice would you give to pilots out there flying these machines that would avoid some of these 
grayer areas or just you know privacy i'd say it's good practice unless you have a reason to be there to to stay a little higher you know don't don't fly right over somebody's roof or you know two feet off their you know their grass if they've got a privacy fence or a fence or something like that definitely stay above the level of that at a minimum when it comes to commercial operations things like that letting people know what's going on i think a lot of times people get worried about stuff because they don't know what's going on uh, they just see this thing hovering there rather than, you know, Timmy down the streets flying for fun or, or this guy's taking real estate pictures. So, I mean, one of the things that we did, uh, we've, we've got a big project that we do in one of the local towns. And one of the things that we did is we held a, a town meeting type thing uh, to where they can come out and ask questions about what we're doing. And uh, it seems to work really well. And then uh, another step that I take is depending on where I'm operating, uh, if I'm operating in like neighborhoods, I'll stop by the local sheriff's office and let them know, hey, you know, here's what we got going on tonight, just in case you get some phone calls. And uh, they're, they're all really good about it for the most part. I haven't really encountered much negativity up here. Granted, we're, we're in a space where, where a lot of UAS stuff is going on uh, between Grand Forks and Grand Sky, UND, Northland College. So I think we're a little maybe more accepting than other places. But everybody's been great. Anybody who's approached me has always been uh, asking questions rather than being irate or, or anything like that. So, As we talked about the technology advancing and really there were no regulations or very very sparse regulations in this industry up until a few years ago when the federal government put said regulations into place what are some of the bigger items to keep in mind when flying with these rules kind of in mind uh, well the big thing is just to follow the rules i mean it's it's fairly straightforward and then there's a little checklist kind of of the things that you can and can't do and uh, really it involves staying under 400 feet uh, not flying at night unless you have a waiver, visual line of sight, being able to determine not only that you can see your aircraft, but what its orientation is, and then making sure that, uh, you know, that, that you're following those things. On, on the recreational side now, uh, they're starting to put some, some harder rules in place around that. And yeah, like I said, the, the big thing is just, just follow the rules. And I mean, it's just, just like with your car. I mean, sure, people will speed here and there, but for the most part, you know, we follow the rules of the road. So what type of differences really exist between those who want to fly for personal use and those who want to fly for business or commercial purposes? Well, for the most part, the people with personal use uh, get a lot more leeway is, is what it is. Um, so during uh, with, with commercial operations, for instance, in order for me to fly at night, I've got to actually go get a daylight waiver uh, because the regulations specifically spell out that uh, you have, it's 30 minutes between dusk and dawn. So I get 30 minutes before sunrise, 30 minutes after, unless I have a waiver. And a part of that waiver is you got to have lights that are visible for three statute miles, things like that. As a, as a recreational user, I can go fly at night if I want to, you know, without so much of, a, so much of an issue. And they, they are starting to crack down a little bit on things around... Uh, around some of the airspace around airports. Uh, it used to be that, hey, you could call up ATC, the, lo the local tower, and say, hey, just to let you know, I'm flying here. You know, you weren't, you weren't required to ask permission as a recreational. Now they're starting to actually have them uh, go through the same process that commercial operators use to get access to some of the, the more controlled airspace. For any of those listeners, listening along to our conversation today who's looking for a great time I go I uh, encourage you to go ahead and look at the rules uh, from the FAA they are very entertaining and a very simple breezy read I can, there's heavy sarcasm there it's uh, <laughs> it's a lot of uh, interesting stuff and you're gonna learn a lot more about aviation than you probably planned on when you went to the store and, and purchased a drone so but Zach what advice do you have for someone who is interested in flying a drone who has never done it so far? 
Well, the big thing would be just to, to kind of look at those rules uh, around recreational use. Um, while if you look at the actual regulations themselves, they get a little more in-depth and, and a little harder to read, uh, there are some great little uh, snippets that kind of uh, simplify a, a lot of the regulations. Um, it, it, I mean, as far as simply, you know, flying up to 400 feet, your aircraft must be less than 55 pounds. Registering your aircraft. You know, there's, there's, like I said, some, some basic rules that we can follow to be safe. It's also a good idea to, to you know, watch some videos on airspace and, and how pilots move through that airspace. Um, that way you're, you're being safe and you know that, uh, you know, hey, if I see that plane over there and I, I can kind of tell, you know, just from the lights which direction it's heading. And maybe I should bring my aircraft down just to be safe. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, when we're out flying these, there's no person inside of them. And while it may be a bit of an inconvenience to, to bring it down lower or, or to stop what you're doing, at the end of the day, the, the inconvenience uh, is, is a little better than putting someone's life at risk. So. Now you mentioned some videos. Are there good resources out there or good informational sites out there that people can find or should go to? There are a ton of good resources. Uh, the FAA uh, has an app, uh, Before You Fly, that allows you to look at uh, kind of the airspace and gives you a little checklist information. Then there's tons of videos out there. If you start looking at, uh, you know, airspace sectionals or, you know, just, just Google it. I mean, YouTube's got just tons of resources on not only passing your Part 107 if you want to do it commercially, uh, but also just having an idea of, of how the airspace works and some good practices. And then you can always come to Northland and we'll happily teach you all that stuff. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this topic before we wrap up today? Uh, just that we're, we're kind of at the, at the entry level, even though they've been around for a long time, uh, around commercial use of UAS and, and the different things we got going on. So I think uh, I'm just excited to see where it goes. I think we've got a, a long way to go yet, and there's a, a lot of ways that we can use these that we maybe even haven't identified yet. Absolutely. Well, Zach, thank you very much for a great conversation. We really appreciate it. Well, thanks for having me. That's Zach Nicklin, who serves as the program manager and UAS instructor at Northland Community and Technical College in Thief River Falls. That's a wrap for this episode of the Rural Perspectives podcast, which is a production of Egg Country Farm Credit Services. To get more great content, please visit www.eggcountry.com.